everyone. This is Paul Borowski, Chief Distribution Officer from Sealy Investment Securities, and I'm joined by my co-host, Clint Sorensen of WealthShield, and welcome to the newest episode of the Fat Pitch Podcast. Uh, today, Clint, we don't have a guest. You and I just get to talk about things on our mind. Yeah, I love this. You and I just get to uh, chop it up about all the stuff going on in the world. And listen, since our friends are kind enough to listen to us on stage and on webinars and in meetings, why not put it out over the airwaves? So let's talk about three things this week. Um, I think two of them are always on your mind and one is on my mind. Number one, inflation. We've been talking about since peak inflation last summer. I remember calling you from Booth School of Business in Chicago. It's daunting when you're the speaker after Austin Goolsby. Second, the consumer. <laughs> which ties into inflation. And then uh, let's talk about Xi and Biden, a meeting coming up. So where do you want to start? Yeah, let's start with inflation. I think that's the hot topic, right? We had a, a great number yesterday in terms of uh, beating expectations flat for the month over month. And we had PPI out today, too. And so PPI yeah. was uh, better than expected as well. Wholesale uh, spending was down, I think, 0.5% month over month. That's so, right. Uh, yeah, that's a big win. Well, you look at peak inflation last summer, what, we were 9.1 around um, May of last year on the CPI? And yeah, and we talked about it slowing, right? I mean, it's pretty obvious that, hey, inflation's going to slow, but everyone was in this camp that it was just going to continue to the moon. So it's been great to see that it's come down for sure. Well, let me ask you a question. So there's all this confusion amongst the folks that I talk to about core Supercore, right? Uh, CPI, PCE. What's next? Let's manufacture. So I believe right now, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the Fed's favorite number is core PCE, which they now have down below four for the last 30 days. And energy prices have not gone the way people thought they could have gone after the Hamas attack on Israel. What are you looking at when you look at inflation? Because it's clearly down. Yeah, it's clearly down. You know, I look at the dollar. That's my favorite thing to look at, right? So, uh, yeah, because it's a leading indicator to inflation. So everything's priced in dollars if you're a U.S. consumer. So I really like to look at the dollar. Really, it's the inverse of the dollar. But if the dollar's stronger, pretty much six to 10 months down the road, you're going to have inflation weaker. Dollar weaker, six to 10 months down the road, you're going to have inflation stronger. So I like to first look at the dollar, Paul. Next, I obviously look at PPI, right? I want to see what different commodity baskets are doing. And uh, you can look at energy, right? If you look at energy and gas prices, you can pretty much get it figured out. Now, CPI is a little confusing because they calculate it a little differently. But I think that's the headline number that everybody pays attention to. But I'm a little odd. I look at the dollar first and foremost. So when I look at all that, though, here's what's interesting. This is a different Fed. There's Fed speak. I mean, I opened up the Bloomberg calendar on Monday and I think, are there 20 Fed speakers this week? It was something insane. And so we never used to run like this, right? There wasn't all this. I mean, there was some subliminal messaging, but it wasn't this onslaught of speakers. And so what I saw when specifically earlier this week, when the two and the 10 year both mercifully for a guy in the real estate sector like me went down. I thought, this is great. Things are headed down. And then further, I started to look at Fed funds futures pricing in zero chance of a rate hike at any meeting anymore. Gone. Done. Gone. Yeah. The probability of a rate cut at the June meeting went from 80% to 130%. 
So what that tells me is now we've got this complete overreaction by the markets and that the Fed wants to come in and, I don't know, give speeches to say, no, we really do mean higher for longer. You think I'm just overreacting or do you see anything in this? I mean, the market has no clue to what the Fed's going to do. No one respects the long and variable lag between a Fed tightening cycle and its effects on the real economy, and in particular on inflation and all those other measures. So the market always overreacts to both sides. And unfortunately, I think the Fed is over-tightened today. Inflation was set to come down from a rate of change perspective just based on base effects, right? Because that was the math of it, is it was going to come down. And they tightened and kept tightening and tightening throughout the higher inflation times. And now they're done. But now we're getting inflation that is uh, resuming its downtrend. And by our forecast, we have maybe a slight uptick into the first half of next year, but not meaningful enough in our opinion. It's falling not to 2% in terms of core inflation, but it's probably you know 3.2 to 3.6, somewhere in that range. But definitely the rate of change has come down significantly. And the Fed's still holding rates high. So I think they have to cut rates because they need to monitor the real rate. That's Um, right. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they play this because Powell, to your point, has just said, hey, here it comes. We've got to go manage the expectations. We said it was transitory. It was, but it wasn't as transitory as the market liked. So we got to step out there and show them that we're going to prioritize inflation and we're channeling our inner Volcker. We're not Arthur Burns. And we're going to go out there and just uh, kill inflation, whip inflation now. And we've overdone it, I think. You know, you and I have had this discussion for well over a year now about the whole transitory thing. I've probably beaten it to death personally. But managing that last point down from inflation, that's where all the risk is. You know, whether it's taking four down to three or three down to two, however you want to play it, what measure you want to use, that risk is always, I think, in that last percent or so in not crashing the economy into a deep recession, since you and I both feel we're basically already in one in some way, shape or form, and not uh, deflationary, right? That's why two was always the number, not zero, so that you overcool the economy. And I think the concern right now, frankly, is the consumer. I had to get off of FinTwit the other day. I still call it Twitter. I don't know what X is. X to me was Xavier McDaniel. Um, Still the only guy that tried to pick a fight with Shaq. Not the best move. Uh, And I guess he would be that old Dallas receiver, but I refuse to say his name being an Eagles fan. Um, But uh, Des Bryant, in case you were wondering. But... um, You know, the consumer is the X factor, right? Consumer's been spending like a drunken sailor. And I just don't know how long that keeps up because going back to financial Twitter, everybody that's trying to show you clickbait is trying to show you how the consumer is driving off a cliff. Yeah. I mean, look, we had tons of pent up savings, right? If you think about how much stimulus was put into the system, I mean, it's amazing. We had PPP loans, idle loans. We had direct stimulus checks to individuals. We had, I mean, the Fed doubled its balance sheet in a, in a matter of days, right? Yeah. 4.4 trillion. We spent another five, six trillion. It was funny. I did a presentation and I think I sent you the meme, but it was you of uh, Will Ferrell walking in saying, you did it. Congratulations. <laughs> like we literally set a record, a record US federal debt 
We set a record in terms of spending, in terms of deficit spending. And guess what? Now we have $8.2 trillion of federal debt maturing in the next 12 months. We've got to issue that. We've got to reissue that much debt. Don't forget, you know, you bring up a good point. Everybody wants to say the consumer is spending like a drunken sailor. Yes, so is our government. Exactly. It's crazy. Are you aware that there's still something like $400 billion in ARCA money that has to be pointed to the specific projects? Yeah. And uh, yeah, exactly. Our ARCA money and then the CHIPS Act, which is sitting in accounts. We haven't even begun to see all the rest of the stimulus. Now, I think that the consumer, though, is tapping out because all that savings that they had from stimulus checks is kind of drying up and we're seeing it in delinquencies. So credit card delinquencies on a year over year basis are up over 50 percent. Yeah, they're up. So are balances. But but that's higher than any other time. Highest since 1991. That's higher than it was in 08. So there is pain in the consumer now forecasting when they're going to stop spending is anyone's guess, right? But at the end of the day, we're seeing some some signs that suggest that consumption is not going to be as robust as it has been. Do you think we're going to see a, sl- a holiday spending, a bad number, or do you think we're still not close enough that we'll see a good number? Yeah, actually, I've been looking at some of the, you know, what they call the high frequency data by folks like Bank of America, et cetera. And if you're looking at some of that, it looks like it it could be softer than expected, but who knows, right? That's my guess based on that information, credit card spending data, but you're getting mixed reports there. I mean, the US, what we do is we spend money. Consumers spend money. Uh, That's why stimulus works so well post pandemic is we gave people checks and then we wondered why we had inflation. They were locked up with a prime account, right? And they're sitting there on their prime account saying, oh, I can't leave the house. I'm just going to start buying stuff. So they just start that buying everything. It's so funny you say that. You know, my entire career in distribution of programs, every time I talk to advisors, it's don't send the income to my client. When you have a liquidity vet, send it back to the account. Otherwise, there's a new boat or a new car. <laughs> exactly. It's wired that way. And we grew up in a consumer-driven culture where, you know, let's get something new and shiny. It's just that's how we're wired, particularly in the United States. And they're not much better over in Europe. You know, I just got back from about two weeks over there. I was in Copenhagen for the first time. I no longer feel tall at six foot three. Um, <laughs> also. Amsterdam and then Germany. And uh, look, they spend over there. I don't think they spend to the degree we do. I think we rule the world in consumer culture. We're completely out of control. I mean, it's nuts. Like if you think about what we do for status, right? It's just such a baked in part of our culture. That's why GDP is 70 plus percent consumption. Some years have been as high as 90% driven by consumption. If we look at our most recent real GDP report, which came out a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, maybe, uh, if you look at that, it was all two things, government spending and consumption. And we're doing both at record pay, at record levels. So yeah, yeah be interesting to see if it holds up. I mean, I would expect rate of change to fall there, Paul. Yeah, I agree with you. So back to the inflation, the report that I focused in on um, earlier this week, it compared uh, Morgan Stanley's number on inflation, on Fed funds rate, et cetera, when cuts are going to come Goldman Sachs which I think was a little more sanguine, and then the Fed, probably using the dot plots. I could not get over how aggressive Morgan Stanley's stance was on how early and how large rate cuts are, and how by the time we're getting towards the end of 25, wow, 
UBS came out too, and they said 275 basis points of cuts next year. So they're really expecting not only inflation to fall, but you have to be expecting growth to fall too. And we're in that camp too, Paul. If you look at, I mean, leading economic indicators have been have been consistently negative for 17 going on 18 months. Mm-hmm. Coincident mm-hmm. indicators have been slowing slowly. But yeah, we're starting to get signs. Unemployment starting to crack, right? We're seeing the unemployment rates cross above the 12-month moving average. That's historically been a pretty good signal. Yeah. If you look at a lot of, uh, a lot of states that are showing continued claims rising at above 10 to 20% year over year, you're getting up to a level that's typically indicative of employment cracks. So I, I think you're going to see some signs of growth slowing and inflation continuing to slow throughout the course of next year. And I think that does historically warrant rate cuts. I just wonder if Powell's going to do that. That's my big question is, is it enough political clearance? Are we just so conditioned like conditioned like Pavlov's dogs that we're, we're seeing the ring of the bell as growth falling and inflation falling and we're salivating over lower interest rates? Obviously, Wall Street wants them. It's going to be interesting to see if Powell actually does that. He's not hinting at that currently. But if he's been data-driven on the way up, then he's got to be data-driven on the way down. And we hear the complaints that they're so data-driven on these increases. I'd like to think they are on the way down, and I'd like to think that they recognize the gross fiscal irresponsibility of the country, and they say, we got to help that side out, and we got to take these rates down. Because as you said and anybody said, we might not say it as strongly as somebody as famous as Drunken Miller, who took Janet Yellen <laughs> literally behind the woodshed. Did you see she refuted his comments? For anybody who doesn't know what I'm talking about, I think the interview was, what, about 10 days ago, Clint? Maybe longer? Yeah, it was with Paul Tudor Jones, too. So you have, like, two of the greatest investors of all time talking about this. It was epic. I wish I could have been there. I was doing a panel in Dallas. I wish I would have been there in the audience. Yeah, and I was headed off to Europe for God knows what reason. My wife (laughs) says, why are you going there in November? It's cloudy. I said, because people are working. It's not August. Or they're off having a good time. Hey, one other thing we'll touch on a little bit longer on inflation on another pod. This really was the summer of the woman. And you and I said, I don't want to come out and ever be labeled a misogynist because I'm as you and I are both as big a champions as we can of the power of the woman long under recognized in, in our country. But between the Barbie phenomenon and Taylor Swift becoming a billionaire, let's unpack that on a future podcast and bring on a, one of our female colleagues to just talk about the pricing and consumer power that females now hold in our country. Oh, it's amazing. Long overdue for Taylor Swift to be a billionaire. That's amazing. I couldn't believe it. when I saw the announcement that she was just now a billionaire. I was thinking, how is that? As a friend of mine who um, was over at the AT&T Stadium, where she did three concerts, said, good performer, even better business person. I think (laughs) you'd have to agree after this summer. And a little more interesting meetup than Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift to me is uh, (laughs) Ian Biden is, my golly, I apologize. Is it next week? Um, do I mean, you know when it is? I don't. I don't want to get on the computer here and look. And I've had a long week, but um, no, it's right now. He's already in San Francisco. They cleaned up San Francisco. You saw that how they cleaned it up in record time. So, and then, and then Newsom gets on the on the screen, 
And you know I'm a libertarian. I'm such a coward when it comes to political. I'm oh, apolitical. Well, does say that. We're almost yeah. political. Right in the middle, right? So it's funny what Gavin Newsom says just made me laugh. He said, yeah, people are going to say I cleaned up the streets quickly because Xi was coming into town. And they're right. But he literally, the streets transformed overnight and San Francisco looks like the city I love or used to love. It looks, uh, it's clean. It looks wonderful. And she's there. Biden's expected to meet and uh, talk to him about several issues. I've heard a lot of uh, interesting tidbits from folks. So I'd be curious what you've heard. I'll just add, it must have been the same crew that cleaned up Beijing before the Olympic Games. (laughs) Exactly. These streets outside the bars in Hong Kong, which are not like they used to be. I will tell you, we could unpack a lot. I'd be curious what you think the keys to this meeting are. Because the problems in China right now are, are pretty severe, particularly from a commercial real estate lens. And then yeah, that caused by this demographic cliff. And the one thing you and I don't like is, you know, the Chinese and Japanese consumption of our 10-year treasuries and longer, the risk of that slowing even further and not being picked up by other parties. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've seen economically China's been in a tough spot, right? U.S. and China diplomatic relations have been not doing so hot, right? Especially since the Russia-Ukraine war and the announcement of Russia or Xi and Putin's kind of unbounded friendship. And I think that that has really kind of accelerated tensions on both sides. And so I think I love to see us getting back to the table. I think it's really important, especially in terms of what's going on. But I saw something from Dr. Pippa Malmgren and she said, and I'm sorry if I mispronounced her last name, but she's awesome. I've heard her speak before. And it's at Dr. Pippa, P-I-P-P-A-M. So, Michael, Dr. P-I-P-P-A-M is her X handle. And she said something I just thought was incredible. And I'm going to read it here because, you know, she's who I follow typically on geopolitics is her and uh, Peter Zian. But she said, uh, CIA boss heads for Z-Day in Kiev as Ukraine falters. On the back of the Xi and Biden meeting, looking for the CIA to negotiate an armistice in Ukraine, and Zelensky will object. U.S. will insist on elections. China will have to hold Russia back. And that's what she kind of said. So I thought that was a really unique take on what's going on and not something I thought about. And I had wrote about this when the Ukraine-Russia conflict started. I said, Xi has to be the one to step up and, and broker peace. I think it's really important for China at this juncture. I think it's important for China on the world stage. I think to hold globalization together, it is imperative for China, who has, to your point, the bad uh, economic situation, the terrible demographic situation. I mean, they just reported their first ever quarterly deficit in foreign direct investment during the July-September period. They've underreported population growth. They said the population actually dropped by 100 million people. And that came out last year. And, you know, they've had a really weak economic environment. When you think about real estate being smoked this year in a lot of negative headlines. So I think it makes sense for both of these sides to come back together, the number one and number two economy, and to figure out ways to work together cooperatively for the greater good, you know, quote unquote, of society. But we'll see what happens. A lot of people are saying they're not holding out, you know, high hopes for the meeting. But I think the fact that their two superpowers are having a meeting is important. I mean, stonewalling each other and, uh, you know, the saber rattling we read in the South China Sea and things like that. 
But you're right. I mean, you touched on when you add commercial real estate being down over 30%, BK on Country Garden and Evergrande, the youth employment problem is a nightmare, so much so that they stop reporting. And I've heard whispers. I can't uh, confirm this, that they'll report an hour a week of work as employed. You know, I don't know. Numbers are murky from a lot of corners. But take a look at that banking system and the stress it's under. It's four times as levered as we were in the global financial crisis. So when Bernanke recapped our system, I always get this wrong. It's somewhere between, what, 800 and a trillion, maybe? Yeah, $800 billion. It's a yeah. little harder to recap theirs at four times the leverage. You can do it, but that's not good for us. That's not good for anyone in the world, to your point. And yep. they can really have a major impact on what's going on over there in uh, Russia, Ukraine, and other parts of that area. Since you spoke about it, too, you look at the pressures on Taiwan and that whole South China Sea region. How important is that CHIPS Act and moving stuff back here to our country to you? Does that still a point of emphasis for you? Yeah, I think it's incredible. I think the manufacturing renaissance and the AI revolution and what's going on across industry in the U.S., I think you have to prepare for deglobalization. Peter Zand said it best in his book. He talked about the U.S. stopping the policing of shipping routes back in 2015. The reason why we had globalization, in his view, was that we have the U.S. with the most powerful Navy in the world policing shipping routes and making sure things run smoothly. They're moving from the area that they are produced the most efficiently to areas that need them the most. So those areas could concentrate on producing other goods that they produce more efficiently and shipping those, right? And so under the protection of the U.S. military, i.e. the U.S. Navy, which is stronger than all the other navies combined by a factor of 10, right? Yeah. When you think about that power going away, what you have is you have, in his view, deglobalization really picking up. And I think that that's what we've seen. We've seen a rise of deglobalization. I can't unsee it now that I see it everywhere. And when you have that happen, you have geopolitical tensions rise and you have a significant amount of... Uh, Here's a problem with deglobalization. By its very nature, it's inflationary. Exactly, because you have a higher cost regime. That's You're right. fighting against that too, particularly right. as you start out in the very early stages of deglobalization before you have efficiencies. And so, you know, kind of finish up this week's comments. You and I do this enough sometimes. Well, back on the chip, I didn't finish all the chips thought. Okay, but yeah, you so go, yeah. You go back to that. I'm always on my own agenda. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love that. But on the chips, your point, like, yeah, that's a higher cost regime because guess what? We're going to say, you know what? We just had COVID, supply chains are broken. We've got deglobalization. I can't be held up and have our economic system held up, which is growing in its chip dependence because I can't get chips from Taiwan. I can't run that risk. So what I need to have is I need to have chips manufactured here. So we have that big Taiwan semiconductor plant being facilitator, that fab, I think it's in Arizona. You got you have, Intel down by Columbus and Dayton, Ohio. You have whoever's doing upstate New York. I mean... It's a meaningful thing. And I think you and I have discussed, and this is kind of one of where I take us today in the last five minutes or so, is you and I are huge believers personally in a chance for a rebirth of American manufacturing. And I'll speak for you. We both believe that we had jobs that were so far below the poverty line in manufacturing. They had to be in China or India or wherever, Vietnam. It just was not feasible here. 
with AI and robotics powered by AI and 3D printing to some degree, we can move those lowest rung jobs back here, mostly automated. We can create more jobs further up the food chain, the income chain that wouldn't have been here. So if instead of a thousand jobs, we create a hundred, I don't care. That's net a hundred because the thousand were gone. Yeah. To me, the biggest benefit in this country is we will be forced to finally make considerable improvements in infrastructure with our bridges and railways and ports. And it is so overdue. And don't get me on my... um, soapbox here, but we're not going to get typical 22-year-old Americans going to do it, so we're still going to need legal immigration for people. Yeah. Uh, our population shrank this year. Not quite. It's down zero. It's to zero. It's year that, over year. And that numbers are shocking. It's crazy. We have to have immigration. Immigration is not a... We have to have it. We've learned from Japan on what not having immigration does. If not, you run a risk of a major deflationary event. Yeah. One minute, you know, the land under the palace in Tokyo is worth more than half of Manhattan. And then they're buying up Manhattan. And the next thing you know, there's a demographic cliff. I mean, yeah. through that living there. So it, I think we both love that. And I'd love to get a guest on sometime to really unpack this potential rebirth of American manufacturing. I think it's something that goes across both sides of the political aisle. And it gets us to infrastructure. Let's face it, Trump, Biden, whoever's next, nobody's gotten anything meaningful done there. (laughs) As people set out for their Thanksgiving and Hanukkah and Christmas holidays, they're going to see just how bad the roads and and bridges (laughs) and many of the airports are in the U.S. And we still are the greatest place to live in the world. But by golly, let's get those things done. And since you brought it up, you know what scared me the most about some of the individual meetings I did in Europe? What's the that? amount of concern from some investors I talked to about fentanyl pouring into the U.S. If you look at the deaths in young men, and it's painkillers and fentanyl is the largest culprit. If you look at it's amazing. The statistics are staggering. You wouldn't have thought um, I would have heard about that in Europe, would you? No, no. That's pretty crazy that they're... I mean, because fentanyl, like, I don't understand if I'm a drug dealer, that's the last thing I'm dealing. Like, killing my customer is my goal. Well, I look at drug dealers as viruses, and they say a virus learns to not kill its host so it can propagate. Yeah. Um, So that's a bad virus. Um, Leave it to me to take us from inflation to fentanyl. (laughs) Um, I love it. They say ADD is a gift. (laughs) I'm embracing (laughs) it this holiday season. So... For those of you playing uh, Fat Pitch Bingo at home, we covered inflation, the consumer, Xi and Biden, American manufacturing, and the scourge of fentanyl. Um, and Taylor Swift. We actually got Taylor Swift in there, too. So that's pretty amazing. And I, I know the NFL loves Taylor Swift these days. <laughs> Viewership is definitely up. Did you catch Carolina this weekend? I did. I didn't go to the game, but I did catch it. So it was nice to get a, get a W. Yeah, you sure. If we can beat Duke, and I spelled Duke with D-O-O-K. Sorry, all my Duke friends out there. But uh, if we can beat Duke, I'm happy. Uh, But, yeah, we still, you know, we've uh, had a disappointing season. We started off so strong and and lost two really close ones. You were crying crying down the stretch last year as the the tournament. Listen, everyone, thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Fat Pitch Podcast. And 
Hopefully you'll join us for the next one. Clint, thanks again, bud. See you, Paul.